Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. your entree into hardcore punk is like a much more there's a generational thing where i think that you you came to it through a certain route that was available to you because of your age and mine i was i did not get into punk at all i still don't enjoy most stuff that people consider like straight up punk music i was a like heavy rock and metal kid and what appealed to me was that hardcore music seemed smarter than the heavy stuff i was listening to and that's what appealed to me um it seemed like heavy metal for smart people so yeah how let's talk about like how you got into the hardcore scene because because that was that was lore to me you know like i said i knew i knew who you were vaguely but only through stories probably from 94 to 96. Um, so I already had a strong opinion of you by the time we actually met at uh, Missing Link. I know that, uh, you know, it's interesting because five years now, and I would say even going back to, I don't know when it when it happens, but at some point in your mid to late 20s, um, that kind of an age difference becomes like null and void. Yeah. You know, I mean, I interact with people who are 10, 11 years older than me. I interact with people that are 10 or 11 years younger than me. And then the, the difference is sort of negligible. So, I mean, you and I being five years apart, having this conversation in 2019, it feels like we're roughly the same age. Yeah. But remembering um, this formative stuff and how important, you know, what a gap that is when I was 19 and you were 14. It's yeah. like, you know. Or 12 like, and 17. When I was 15 and the bass player in one of my first bands uh, was 17, my dad thought that it was troubling that a 17-year-old was hanging out with a 15-year-old. I remember him saying once, you know, and when this dude came over to pick me up in his beat-up van with punk stickers all over it, like, what's a 17-year-old want to hang out with a 15-year-old for? Um, whereas now it doesn't seem like any, anything, but, you know. Um, and I also remember uh, when we were in hardball, there, there were four of us in the band. I was the, I was the youngest. Um, our bass player and guitar player were each a year older than me. And then our drummer was three years older than me. And when I was 16 and he was 19, the age difference seemed so wide that we called him Uncle Keith. Um, he was, he, he lived on his own. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, different universes. Like we thought of him as like a grown ass man and ourselves as kids. You know, so um, how did how did you get from being 11, 12 year old kid spending weekends in Broadpool, you know, eating vegetarian food and reading Rom Space Night? <laughs> how did you get from that kid to uh, Metallica at the Ritz? I had the benefit of an older brother who uh, our tastes have never been quite the same, but they've also had points of overlapping interest you know there, I, I, I was big you know i was that first mtv generation for starters uh when you know duran duran and the police and adamant and billy idol and all that stuff were were on mtv i was full on and my brother was uh, such an acolyte of prince in the early 80s uh that him and his best friend um made their own clothes so they could dress like Purple Rain era, 1999 controversy era, friends, actually, earlier, because I remember Purple Rain being uh, a huge deal. I remember uh, 
he and I and my mom, you know, having to be in front of the TV. We were at some relative's house and it was like, it's 8 p.m. The Windows Cry video was getting its world premiere on MTV. Like, we've got to be on the couch in front of this thing right now. Um, and that was all driven by my older brother. Um, and he turned me on to things that would, you know, prove to be somewhat obscure, like uh, Hanoi Rocks. Being really into Billy Idol, who was a big pop star when I was in elementary school, I discovered Generation X, which was his, you know, late 70s English punk band prior to him going solo. And via Generation X came the Sex Pistols and, you know, picking up that Black Flag, Jones Again 12-inch at second time around was, was driven by nothing other than thinking that this looks like it's kind of similar to Susie and the Banshees and Adam and the Ants. Same thing, you know, Adam Ant was a, was a pop star for a moment there in America when I was in elementary school and I went back to Adam and the Ants. So that was sort of, I, I had the, the benefit of, you know, punk rock in elementary school, you know, as a little kid, which as we're sitting here now, sounds awesome and cool and forward thinking and, and wow, how hip and, and advanced I was. But putting it in the context of 1983, 84, 85, and 86, Indiana, south side of Indianapolis, those were the worst things for me to be into. <laughs> <laughs> no one else was into those things, except for my small cadre of weirdos that I've mentioned before, where we all sort of found each other and then turned, turned each other on to different things. And I was immediately othered well before I was aware of systemic and historic uh, oppression of all sorts of disenfranchised groups. But in that bubble of, uh, you know, lower middle class, working class, blue collar, white trash, um, South Side Indianapolis, in fourth grade, kids called me Ryan the Rocker, which again, sounds awesome, but was not awesome. It was a, it was a taunt. <laughs> like it wasn't, that wasn't said with some sort of loving reverence and admiration that was um kids making fun of me because i wore, yeah because you were uh, different yeah i had buttons and pins on my jacket and um i used to get these fake leather pants from zares from the department store yeah um that were seven dollars a pair and that would be my lunch money and mowing lawn money i would buy these fake leather pants and uh and wear those with like you know uh you know, I wore like the kamikaze headbands and like stuff like that, you know, in third and fourth grade. And um, again, it sounds so cool right now, but uh, I can't emphasize enough how not cool it was. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, Vans, I'm, I'm wearing a pair of Vans right now as we're taping this. Um, thanks to my older brother, I was aware of Vans and we knew the right bicycle shop to go to where you could Get customize them. your Vans even. Yeah, they had, gave you a little catalog and you could pick what was going to be on the different parts of, of your slip-ons. And awesome. um, I got made fun of relentlessly for my shoes in elementary school and middle school. And I just, I wore Vans because my brother and his couple of friends did. And, you know, Jeff Spicoli did in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, kids at the bus stop made fun of them. And I actually, um, you know, one story definitely doesn't come up often. I had a sleepover with a couple of other kids. I think this would have been sixth grade. And I realized about, you know, 90 minutes, two hours in, it, it, whatever point where it was like too late to go back home, you know, that the whole point of inviting me over to this sleepover, which was already two other kids, was to, you know, have someone to bully. Um, and one of, the, one of the things they did is they took my Vans, black and white checkered slip-ons, and um, filled them with mustard. And, you know, we'd all taken our shoes off uh, in the apartment. And then, you know, at some point they're like, hey, let's go outside and whatever, whatever. And we're all putting our shoes on. And then it's, ha, 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 my, as my white socks go into my, and it's the only pair of shoes I owned, you know? Yeah. Um, that sucks. And, uh, yeah, and there was a whole, you know, it was, uh, I did end up walking home because it was in the same apartment complex. One of those kids is a teenager, uh, you know, gangbanger. <laughs> um, anyway, uh yeah, and you know, and when people, you know, all the, the talk about bullying and so on that goes on now, um, I was bullied pretty mercilessly um, through uh, really all of sixth grade uh, by two different kids in succession, you know, one after another, where literally I would get chased home from the bus stop 
every day after school and would show up to the bus stop at the last possible second before the bus pulled up or hide behind something um, until I saw the bus coming to avoid, you know. And, and by the way, I never actually got beaten by any of these kids. I, I just allowed myself to be, um, you know. Yeah. Emotionally abused. Yeah, and this was my dad, um, blue-collar, Irish Catholic, old-school Indiana person. But my understanding of it, he's pretty private about a lot of details, and, and a lot of things I know about his early life come from uh, his two brothers who have now both passed away, and his sisters, um, one of whom has passed away. And, uh, you know, my dad's older. He was born in, in 1939. So even, even for me at 45, he's an, he's an older parent yeah. relative to a lot of people I know. Uh, my dad, by all accounts, could have gone to college on a basketball scholarship. Instead, got his girlfriend pregnant at 17. And by 19, was married with two kids. I don't know at what point that marriage disintegrated. But he had moved his childhood sweetheart and wife and two kids to uh, Northern California, to the Bay Area, and uh, basically, you know, drank and gambled his his way out of that family. And, and to my knowledge, didn't really have any contact with them for, for many years. So he, he leaves that family, his ex-wife. Oh, shit, I forget. You, you've got half-siblings. Yeah. <laughs> I forget two sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, which is, which is great by the way, because my, my half sister and I have, uh, reconnected in recent years and actually even got to spend some time together in person a year or two ago. It's been awesome and it's wild how much we have in common and how similar we are as people and our views on things. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, she's a literal grandmother. Um, cause you know, <laughs> as I said, my, my, uh, my dad, you know, had these kids when he was 17 and 19, my half brother who actually has my dad's first name, he's Joe Jr., um, had so many issues with, you know, my dad leaving their family that uh, when his mom remarried, he uh, changed his last name to his stepdad's last name. Wow. I met him twice as a teenager. Once he and his wife, for whatever reason, had dinner at our house, and I was 13 or 14, and I was wearing a Dead Kennedys Holidays in Cambodia shirt. And my half-brother, who had, you know, grown up in the Bay Area before coming back to Indiana at some point as an adult, saw my shirt, which, a shirt that my dad very openly hated, uh, saw my shirt and was like, I got my nose broken stage diving at a Dead Kennedy show. This, mind you, was probably 1987. So <laughs> my half-brother had seen the Dead Kennedys, like, in the day. So my, so my dad had, you know, these two kids, very young. As it relates to me, um, when my dad was in his 30s, he met my mom. Um, they both worked at the Indianapolis Star News, where my Hoosier Illusion co-host, Neil Tapplinger, would work. Yeah, where I, I worked for almost a decade. Yeah, my parents were... I have a, uh, a clipping that an aunt gave me, one of the few effects of my mom's that I have. Uh, she was in a print ad in the paper where they used her as the model. I remember seeing that at some point. But yeah, they met. Uh, she was a secretary at the Star News. My dad worked in the mailroom. Um, and they met there, at, you know, in the 70s. Uh, got married. Had my older brother. Five years later, had me. When I was two years old, uh, for whatever reason, my dad took another newspaper job in the Bay Area of California and moved us to California, where I lived from age two to four. When I was four... My parents got divorced. Some of my earliest memories are of my dad in our, you know, wood panel station wagon, driving my brother and mom and I across country uh, with a bunch of our belongings packed in the station wagon back to Indiana and, you know, dropping us off at one of my mom's sister's houses. My dad went back to, to California. So from age four to about age 10 or 11, I didn't really see him again, once or twice, I think. But he was in California. We were in Indiana. My mom was a, a single parent, a, a secretary at a different company. So we're both fathers now. 
you and your kid's mom are not together anymore. I'm still married. Can you fathom the emotional response to dropping your children off and leaving, knowing that you probably weren't going to be seeing them or you had no plan to see Like I, I can't even, I cannot even comprehend that sequence of events, you know, like just being able to not be present for your kids boggles my mind. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I can't, I mean, and, and yeah, and that's a, um, my, my ex and I splitting five years ago, the most devastating thing about it initially was the idea that somehow my kids were going to have a childhood similar to mine. And one of the significant turning points very early into that situation, which I have a vivid memory of, of recognizing and owning, speaking into existence, as they say, <laughs> um, just because her and I weren't going to be together anymore did not mean that my kids were going to have my childhood. It did not mean that I was going to make the decisions that my own father had made um, just because we weren't together. And that yeah, was, you didn't have to disappear. Yeah, and it sounds like, uh, you know, I'm sure you could be listening to this and be like, well, duh. Um, <laughs> but, but realizing that and really feeling it, embracing it, um, you know, intellectually, it's very easy to understand, but emotionally, you know, um, kind of putting that together and, and realizing that. Yeah. That well, and, and step forward. Con conversely, um, you know, it's funny, like we've, we've joked about sort of being opposite sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. I remember distinctly my dad telling me at some point that the reason why he and my mom had stayed together, at least the reason why he hadn't left before he did, um, was because he didn't want to leave my sister and I, and he didn't feel like he would have access to us or, or any rights to visitation if he left. Um, so from essentially the time of my birth till I was 15, my dad basically hung in there because of us. Now that created, there was collateral damage for that decision. Yes. Yeah. Which I'm not surprised to hear because I, I something uh, that, that was very helpful during that whole transition for me about five years ago in my experience as a, as a journalist. Um, and right around that time, I was really knee deep in doing these in-depth uh, cover stories, largely on lead singers from, you know, metalcore and screamo bands. And these are a lot of, you know, sort of damaged guys with messed up childhoods and broken homes and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm making, you know, as a storyteller and as someone who's, peeling the layers of the onion with a lot of these, um, you know, charismatic and, and flawed people, there's a lot for me to relate to and a lot to understand. And, and uh, you know, one singer in particular, his mom was a drug addict who, you know, abandoned him when he was an infant. And then he was raised by his dad, who was also a drug addict and was an outlaw biker, who uh, around the time he was in his teenage years, his dad... Um, uh, became a born-again Christian and went from being a, an outlaw biker to a Christian biker <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and everything that, you know, it's just a whole, you know, just a, a crazy, you know, sort of story, but the type of story that I relate to. And something really profound happened in one of those profiles where I was talking to a singer. You know, one of my first questions in those environments is always like, tell me about your, you know, what are your parents like? <laughs> you know, what was the, I'm always, I'm immediately trying to kind of dig into that. And Really profound that one of those singers told me, you know, his parents were together for his entire childhood and that they shouldn't have been. And then, <laughs> and then proceeded to tell me, you know, all of the problems. And again, intellectually, it makes perfect sense. But for me, emotionally, to really hear and understand yeah. um, about the sort of, you know, the trauma and the invisible ink, as you as you've so well put it that environment can can leave 
and this wasn't, by the way, he wasn't describing like, you know, a violent marriage or, you know, uh, but, but even just a loveless marriage of, of yeah, yeah. people that, yeah, um, aren't happy together or shouldn't, shouldn't be together, however you want to, you want to phrase it, what that can, the harm that can do to children. Amanda and I have had some rough patches and there were, there were times when I wasn't sure if we were going to make it and I wasn't sure if it was, if my unhappiness was going to be, was going to damage my kids, even though I wanted to be around, you know? So it's like the, the, the thing that's tricky now at the point in our lives where we are is that we don't get to make decisions just for ourselves anymore, or at least we don't feel like we can because everything we do has a ripple effect that is going to have consequences that we can predict and we can't predict. So everything is like a leap of faith, you know, it's like everything from how my wife and I interact to what we choose to do for my daughter's first, you know, for her school choice, for where she goes to kindergarten. Like there's just all these things that are, they're going to ripple through time that I can't control. And it's terrifying for somebody who wants to be able to control and, uh, and predict outcomes and, and set things up in a way that is mechanical and predictable. Um, and I think my own experience with my family left me I learned about all or nothing thinking in the last couple of years uh, thanks to my therapist pointing out that that's how I approach the world mm. um, and I realized that in terms of, of marriage my all or nothing thinking was you're either happy or you're divorced and <laughs> yeah and you know there's there's a lot of space in between those two things and you're not going to be in the same place all the time in a marriage or a relationship. You know, you're not going to be, you're not going to be happy all the time. You're not going to be sad all the time. You're not going to be mad all the time. You can be content all the time. And that's a choice that you can make. Um, and that's a process that you can work through. Um, and thankfully I got to that place. I realized that there weren't, the problems that I had with my marriage were not problems that I had with my marriage. They were problems that I had with myself mm. and, um, the marriage wasn't going to get better until I fixed my own shit. And now that that's in progress, I have a clearer view of maybe things with the relationship that need work from both parties. But, but that stuff, I wouldn't have had a true sense of that until I finally, you know, started working on me. Man, to answer your question, you know, uh, and that idea of my dad, you know, uh, not only dropping off his, his two sons with his ex in Indiana and piecing out back to California, um, but also having having more or less done that before, you know, a decade prior. Right. Um, and I realized, by the way, when my daughter was born that I was the exact same age that my dad was when I was born, uh, which huh. was just an interesting and weird sort of coincidence. But um I don't know if you remember this, but we were still in semi-regular contact when she was born. And maybe one of the last times you came to Indiana, we came to the hotel on Southport yeah. Road. Oh, I, 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 I very much remember that. And that was the, uh, uh, well, that was the last time I, I came to visit. That was uh, 2008. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, my daughter wasn't, um, she was, she was born December 30th, so she would have been almost one years old when you met her. Yeah. And I, and I, and I remember you saying, uh, I don't goo goo gaga over people I don't share DNA with. <laughs> robot Neil comment to make. And I remember yeah. uh, on Facebook when you announced uh, that you were about to have your first child, um, I left a, a snarky comment saying, finally, you know, finally someone you can goo gaga over. Like, and uh, and I remember uh, Amanda, your wife, who I don't really know, uh, commenting, basically getting your back and going like, yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> I forget what she said, but it was something that was like, you know, like, uh, 
supporting your earlier comment and i remember thinking <laughs> i remember thinking twofold like well that kind of sucks but also like i guess she's the i guess she's the one for him yeah <laughs> um uh, but yeah and obviously yeah. i don't take offense to it knowing you as well as i do i know where sort of everything comes from uh yeah but that's kind of the problem you know like there are so few people who know where i'm coming from that I just float through life being a dick to people and not realizing it and then not realizing that I don't want to do it, but yeah, there, were, there, there, was, there was some explaining to do for me for sure afterwards. <laughs> uh, Why your friend's a dick, you know, from that sorry comment, about, you know, sorry about that. Yeah. Well, I, and I think what I was trying to get at, and this is something I, I sincerely felt like it, it really wasn't until I had, children that that instinct was activated in me which i completely by the way um can sympathize with and and uh and don't fault you for but but just breaking down the nuance of that interaction and and i I doubt that you would disagree in 2019 um the issue is you don't need to say that (laughs) oh no yeah yeah no you don't need to goo goo gaga over my kid if that's not something you're capable of or feeling but you don't need to announce that you aren't going to <laughs> yeah no there's a yeah my life is is my life is a messy trail of things that i didn't need to say out loud um and i part part of it is learning what i need to say and what i don't need to say and part of it's like I don't have some of those thoughts anymore, you know, like mm. I'm not compelled to take a position on something because I don't think it, you know, like yeah. I, and, you know, and it's, I think some of it's just like, it's just, it's the anxiety of like not knowing how to articulate feelings or not knowing how to, how I'm supposed to be in a situation because things were never modeled for me. So I'm making it up as I go along or I'm, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's so, yeah, I'm sorry that I was an asshole about that. I wasn't meaning to be. No, uh, I and I wasn't, um, I don't want to say comedy because that's patronizing, but there, but there, there, there's just something about it why it's memorable. You know, the fact that I remember that, and but I also, you know, I remember, you know, sitting in your car and talking about music, and I think we went to Perkins or Denny's or something. I, mean, I have good memories of that hang. You know, yeah. it's not smeared by that one comment, and part and part of that's also me because I'm, you know, one of my things to deal with is. I am, you know, I have that all or nothing thing that you have. So I'll also take a, a, a real or perceived slight like that and let it ruin a whole situation. Um, yeah. I, I didn't in that case, but um, but you know what I'm saying? Like it. Yeah. And that's, and that's something that's changed even for me probably between then and now. Um, I, 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 I make things about me. That, that kind of comment would hurt <laughs> my feelings in that situation because, yeah. um, I'm taking something personal that I shouldn't be. I should have the scope to be able to go, oh, Neil, in my mind. You know what I mean? Um, right, yeah. And that's, that's, it's funny because that's something that I've learned how to do too, is just not assume that everything's about me. Right. Right. Or a judgment of me. Um, yes, exactly. So I was driving the kids somewhere a couple weeks ago and I realized. Like I, I was, you know, you have certain routes that you take to places every single time. And I was on Keystone heading toward 82nd Street and there was traffic backed up and I was like, ah, fuck this. And I pulled off onto a one of the side roads that cuts between Keystone and Allisonville. And I realized that I was driving by Bunting's old house, uh, Brett Bunting, who is uh, an old friend of ours, uh, drummer of Indianapolis, uh, metal band, Hari Kiri, uh, short time drummer of the band that I was in. Um, the last drummer of the band I was in, 
Um, and just all around uh, remarkable human being, um, publisher of the, the Goblin Cleaver fanzine in the late 90s. So I texted him. And I was like, dude, I, I just realized that I was by your old house. Should I, 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 I was tempted to stop by and see if the owners had a, a bottle of cold duck that we could crack open. He wrote me back and he said, the first time you came to my house, the race trader kids were there and you knocked on the door. I opened it and you asked if they were there. I said, yes. And you walked by me without acknowledging me or saying <laughs> hi. And by, by the way, as, as, as soon as you were halfway into that story, I knew where I knew how it was going to end. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, amazing. Yeah. But, and so it's like, I have no recollection of that, but, you know, and I apologize to him, you know, like, sorry, 20 years ago that I acted like that. And that was just normal. And he said, he said, I, I wasn't upset at the time. I thought it was funny and on brand. And that's really, that's really what I've struggled with. That's, that's really so much of why I don't want to talk about that period of my life mm. because it's so intertwined with me being a total fucking asshole, uh, an indiscriminate asshole, like just a human torch burning every single fucking thing around me and not knowing it most until 10, 20 years later. Um, the amount of damage that I caused just being me is really fucking hard for me to deal with still 20 years on. Um, and that's why it's so difficult for me to talk about that shit because it just reminds me not only of how unhappy I was, but how much damage I did to other people and how many, how many quote unquote funny stories there are of me being a hurtful prick, you know, like, it's not funny to me, you know, like it sucks. It sucks that that's the impression that I left. It sucks that, that those are memories that people have of me, you know, like if I died tomorrow, are people going to be getting together at J Clyde's and telling stories about how I was a really funny prick to them back in 1998? You know, like that doesn't really, that doesn't really uh, leave me with, with warm feelings about myself. So, um, I've made as many apologies as I can make, you know, and I've, I've tried to forgive myself and extend myself some grace, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's, I don't, I don't like thinking about it and I, I don't like talking about it. It's going to sound like I'm changing the subject, but I, I want to preface this by saying I'm by no means am I, my dad, something my dad had that we don't, uh, was he was an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler. And certainly those two hugely important factors were clouding uh, all of the decisions he was making and all of the, uh, you know, all of those uh, choices that had such an impact on his kids. And, you know, about a year or so before my mom passed away, my dad came back to Indiana, um, as I would later find out again through the lore of, of, his family and not from him directly, but he over, over gambling debts, but it was enough of a wake up call that when he came back to Indiana, he uh, got into Alcoholics Anonymous and he's been sober since I believe 1986 um, and, you know, regularly attends meetings and, and so on. And, you know, he likes to say that, uh, that he and I grew up together um, because to his credit, you know, just as he's getting his shit together and he's newly sober and, and struggling, you know, white knuckling through all of that, working his 12 steps and everything. Um, yeah. My mom passes away, you know, suddenly it was like, Hey, these kids are going to go live with an aunt and uncle on my mom's side, which would have been devastating. Uh, that aunt and uncle both have passed away and God rest their soul. But, um, you know, that was the uncle that I, I first heard the N word from that uncle. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it, 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 things worked out as they were supposed to, that that's not where we ended up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, anyway, my dad was confronted with this, like, you know, put up or shut up. And he, uh, he, he took us in and he took it on and he became a full-time single dad and worked a shitty night shift to provide for us. And, you know, eventually remarried, uh, to my stepmom who, my stepmom was someone he had met in Alcoholics Anonymous who had her own, you know, she was in a very terrible alcoholic abusive marriage and had three adult children from it. And her and my dad were, you know, pretty happy together and found each other. And my dad basically grew to become, um, he got his shit together and became a pretty, you know, awesome guy for lack of a better phrase. Um, you know, but that was all, he was, he was doing all of that during my formative years and I admit, and he had missed most of my childhood. So, you know, that was, that was pretty difficult. But, my, but the reason why I said it sounds like I'm changing the subject, but I'm not, is that my dad spent so much of my late teens and early twenties apologizing to me and <laughs> trying to make amends. And, and, uh, you know, I have, I have a vivid memory of my brother and I as adults, you know, it was in my early twenties, my brother in his late twenties, somewhere in there sitting in the car once with him and him, you know, these three uh, emotionally repressed Irishmen sitting in a car as he's uh, literally pleading with my brother and I to forgive him and us. If anything, uh, kind of uncomfortably going like, yeah, I yeah, know it's cool to just not talk about it, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, any anything to avoid this, Dad. Yeah. And, and, him, and him accepting that pretty quick to just be done talking about it, too. You know, he, he's, he's tried, he's done his, and, and what I hear in you, you know, going back to that all or nothing thing, I would be disappointed and, I, and, and, I, and I'm not chastising you for this too harshly because I think it's just kind of where you're at on the spectrum right now, but I would be disappointed if coming out of the woods, the totality of your view of yourself in those years is 100% negative. I would be really sad about that uh, because I because it isn't true um it's not to discount your uh, discomfort with different interactions and different different ways that you handle different people in situations aside from the fact that we were we really were fucking kids you know and yeah. <laughs> and for and for whatever scorched earth you may have left behind emotionally um Dude, we knew people who didn't make it out of those years, you know, people who, who uh, died, who overdosed on drugs, people who committed suicide, people, you know, we've, yeah, you could have done a lot worse, first of all. <laughs> and second yeah. of all, um, for all of the darkness of those years for you and, and the things that you don't like facing about who you were then, you also accomplished a lot of good. You, um, I mean, you were a teenage activist, dude. Like, that's fucking crazy and awesome, <laughs> you know? You uh, organized things. You made things. You, uh, you, and you did build and forge relationships uh, with a lot of people who were as complicated and, and more damaged than you were. And, and people that you were a positive influence on, even if the rear view of it is, you know, things like that story about meeting Bunting. I mean... <laughs> clearly you have a relationship with bunting now you know what yeah. i mean like it didn't you didn't poison the well the pun definitely not intended uh entirely <laughs> with those moments and, and and the reason why i say i, I know you're, you're sort of it's the pendulum swinging and, and and like your therapist telling you all or nothing you know maybe your your attitude and your self-image about yourself back then was all or nothing and you were an absolutist and you were right about this this and this and and so on and uh, knocking people down as they were in your way. And now you're sort of viewing it with that same absolutism. If your <laughs> take is going to be that it was all bad and you were just a total asshole piece of shit and fuck that guy you used to be, uh, yeah. because you were not all bad. <laughs> I wouldn't even say that you were mostly bad. Um, I would argue that you were mostly good because I did know you then and having sort of come through a similar reputation even you know five years prior in some circles as the uh militant vegan guy that people didn't want to be around so yeah so i would caution you against being too hard on yourself why well, i think it's important to work through that stuff as you as you clearly are and to own 
the unsavory parts of it to not let that become your all or nothing view that, uh, you know, either that era was good or it was bad. Um, you know, much like marriage, <laughs> there's, there's a whole lot in between, uh, you know, you were an asshole as a teenager or you were a good guy. Yeah. And again, uh, real assholes, you know, sold drugs and, and became, you know, white power skinheads. And, <laughs> you know, there's like a whole list of shit that we didn't do, <laughs> you know, that assholes did, you know. Yeah. Yeah. People that robbed and stealed and, you know, all, you know, all sorts of things that I'm sure there, there are people in their 40s trying to work through that they did as teenagers that were that's fair. absolutely despicable, that weren't even on our radar, that we were... Uh, we were assholes because we were so mean about all of our progressive political views. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. Um, we both had dads who were going through twelve steps when we were kids, uh, for different reasons. But in the, at the end of the day, it's all the same reason, and it's mm -hmm. all the same twelve step, um, regardless of what it is that you have a problem with. Indeed, I learned a lot about that process and about. Uh, mental health before I was able to really understand it or apply it. Um, and I thought I was, but I wasn't. And so, uh, same. I could literally be <laughs> saying everything you just said. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I had an intellectual understanding of it, but not an emotional understanding of it. And um, what you said about growing up together, one of the things I learned without really being able to internalize it was the concept that when you're traumatized or you're an addict or basically – when you're doing things to avoid feelings, your emotional development gets stunted and it stays stunted until you start developing emotional skills again, whether it's through sobriety or whatever. A psychiatrist or psychologist would probably correct me for explaining it this way, but in broad strokes, my understanding is, you know, if you start if you start binge drinking when you're 15 and being an, act, an active alcoholic till you're 30, when you, when you sober up, you're 15 emotionally and you have to start from that point and develop those skills. I mean, that was James Hetfield on some kind of monster. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like in some ways I'm still working my way into my early twenties emotionally because there's so many things that I never learned how to do. I never, I never learned how to be gray. You know, it's like everything was binary. You know, um, like one of my favorite concepts in the entire world was, you know, do or do not. There's no try. You know, like yeah, there's lots of fucking trying. There's lots of gray. It there's a lot more than do or do not. Um, only a, only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and then bringing it back to pop culture, like, yeah, like we're telling, we're, we're consuming these stories without really understanding what they're about for years, you know, without really understanding that like, you know, the greatest villain of our generation was a fucking wounded kid who got twisted up because of his pain and not being able to process it, you know? Not to over-intellectualize it, but, you know, like, Darth Vader was just a pissed-off kid who someone turned uh, to the yeah. dark side. Yeah, who, did, who didn't have a father and who was ripped away from his mother at a young age. <laughs> yeah. And who felt responsible for what happened to her when he, in his absence. Yeah, and then, and then couldn't have a functioning relationship with the woman he loved, you know? Yeah, totally. And, and, and so many of those – and it's like, why – is that story so relatable? Well, because <laughs> because he's so all many, of us. yeah. Because as much as we want to be Luke Skywalker, we're actually Darth Vader. Are you watching uh, Barry on HBO? The uh, no. Bill Hader show, brilliant. Without spoiling the show, you haven't seen. There's a one character says to another, um, or one character asks another if it, if it's possible to change our nature, and the other character says, you know, I certainly hope so, or else we're both in deep trouble. And, uh, yeah, I would say that we want to be Luke Skywalker. We are Darth Vader, but, you know, we can still work towards Luke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we don't have to be Vader. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the way I think of it now is, like, 
and maybe this is maybe this is my all or nothing, but like I I feel I feel like Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi, and my kids are Luke. You know, like I'm just gonna I'm gonna sacrifice myself so that you don't have to go through this shit. Hopefully, so we can maybe break the cycle. You know, you talked about that that thing of uh, that sort of emotional arrested development that can occur. I'll tell you this, uh, when I went to talk therapy six or seven years ago, and then again, maybe five years ago, you know, as my 10 and a half year relationship with the mother of my children was, was ending, had ended, you know, I've struggled with, uh, feeling like, you know, you, you, you mentioned feel, feeling like you're, uh, like a lot of your life is a performance and, I felt that emotionally that I was performing, you know, as my, when my relationship crumbled, I looked at everything and I was like, you know, I'm uh, self-made and, you know, I've created this life for myself and for my family. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm a provider and I, I, I'm honest and I, I've never cheated in this relationship or any other, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I don't eat meat. I don't uh, raise my voice or lose my temper or, you know, I did this whole list of, of all of my awesome qualities. And yet things didn't work out for me. And I was, I was done wrong regardless of being this saintly, you know, <laughs> martyr uh, climbing up on my cross and being, being so swell. And, and why weren't, why weren't, you know, you're supposed to get something for that uh, rewarded for that. And I was, there's no prize from God, Ryan. <laughs> dude. Um, and it, you know, I felt, you know, I, I felt like a lot of my positive qualities, you know, my, uh, my faith, my, uh, my virtue, my integrity, my joys, um, that they were faked and that, uh, you know, um, Again, to bring up pop culture references, I was minus the womanizing and the booze, which is really just the window dressing anyway, if you're really digging into it. Um, I was Don Draper. I was uh, Tony Soprano. I was uh, this black void of nothing, as you know. <laughs> it's all a big nothing, like, you know, Livia Soprano famously says. And I was worried that I was Dexter. You know, I didn't have psychotic murderous thoughts, but when you're introduced to Dexter in the first season and he's, you know, bringing donuts to everybody at work and what, he's like doing all this stuff that's like, he's putting on, he's going through the motions of what it would, of what being a human is. Yeah. And I, um, he's performing normal. Yeah. And I, and again, and to take my own advice that I just gave you, looking back, I can certainly understand that I'm being too hard on myself and that I wasn't always a robot and that there were many moments of true joy and pain um, and love and sadness and all these things. But by and large, I, I felt like I spent my 20s and, and my 30s <laughs> um, you know, white knuckling forward with this version of an idealized version of myself that I wanted to be true. That wasn't, if that makes sense. And then, yeah. and then I just, uh, didn't, I just did things, you know, it was like, I just did them. I, I worked, I worked and worked and worked and worked because that's what you do. And I provided because that's what you do. And I started yeah. a family because that, that's what you do. And all this stuff was just like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And there was no, I couldn't tell you where the, rule book of, of what you're supposed to do even came from, but I always had one, you know, a code yeah. of like, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do and I'm doing it and I'm doing it well. Why am I still miserable? Yes. Thank you. Exactly. And, um, I had decided at some point rather consciously, um, I know that I'm not fulfilled, but boo fucking who? Who says you're supposed to be? Um, uh -huh. So many things are go are are swell for me on the outside, 
I'm not owed feeling great on the inside. So first so, world so, problems, bro. So first world yeah, problems. and that's how I and that's and that's and that's how I white knuckled through it because I thought, well, you're not you're not entitled to everything. I'm yeah, not, I'm not. I don't deserve or I'm not owed. So I just went through going like I know that there are things that are missing in my life, but um, too bad. Like I'm a fucking man. I'm gonna. You know what I mean? Like I'm. 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 You know. I'm yep. just doing it. I'm not gonna sit around and wallow and, and whine about uh, how I don't have everything that I that I want. Yep. So C- crying is not trying, is what my dad used to say. But yeah, my lowest point. I asked, uh, you know, am I Dexter? Am I uh, am I a sociopath? Do I do I not have feelings? That was my my fear. You know, I was afraid that I didn't have that I couldn't feel. And I don't know if you made it through all of Mad Men, but I mean, that's, you know, Mad Men was created by someone who was a big part of The Sopranos and it's very similar through lines in those shows. And again, it's, you know, to the average person who's, who is, it does, the emotional beats don't resonate with or they don't care or they're wired differently. You can look at those shows and go, oh, the show's about mafia people and murders and, you know, strip clubs and whatever and this show is about admin in the 60s and everything looks cool and sleek and he's sleeping around about you know and that's kind of the great thing about art right is you can you can like yeah. the song because of the riff or whatever but the core of those shows and the um the fucking depression that those two shows are about so when i you know when i asked my therapist this question and keep in mind, we had been through at this point, you know, some specifics of different things that were actively happening right at that time, you know, somewhere on a list of top 20 most important things ever said to me. He said, uh, you're not a sociopath. A sociopath is somebody who shoots a puppy and feels nothing. And that isn't you. And then he gave me a couple of examples of, of uh, you know, to em- emphasize and illustrate that fact of things I'd already told him. Um, you know, that were, that ran counter to that. But furthermore, he, what he said, and this goes back to what you were saying and about our parents and about ourselves, he said, you, at a crucial time in your life, when you were, when a person develops the tools to access their emotions, you, you lost a parent. And then that was, uh, you didn't have the tools to access or process those emotions so you shut them off and lock them away and that was that's a period in your life when you were supposed to be developing the tools to access your emotions um so and that you didn't have any adults who were like midwifing you through that process right right so because your dad was an emotional child as well exactly so he so he was like you it's all in there. It's a fucking raging sea in there. What the work that we're going to do in here is going to be teaching you to access. So they're, 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 you know, my, my big worry was that they just, the, the, my feelings just didn't exist, you know? Yeah. And his very wise and educated and professional diagnosis was, no, it's all in there. It's um, what, what, what doesn't, work are your tools and your mechanisms to properly and healthily access them and get there. Yeah. So there's relatively few people who would really understand this metaphor, but I, I was, uh, I realized that as much as I loved Wolverine and Colossus when I was a kid, the X-Men character that I actually relate to the most was Cyclops. I don't know if I ever explained this to you, but I had this realization one day that emotionally I've always been Scott Summers. At some point I, I opened my eyes, you know, I opened my heart and like, it was just this destructive ray of energy. Mm. And when I saw people get freaked out or weirded out by how strong my feelings were, I shut it down and you know, there's that, you know, before he gets to professor Xavier's school for the gifted, 
he pretty much has to keep his eyes closed all the time because otherwise he's going to destroy everything around him. And then he gets special glasses. He gets a visor so that he can modulate the energy coming out of him. Mm-hmm. And that's what and, I'm and learning so, how to And sometimes weaponize it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's that like that's what I'm learning how to do now. Like before I either opened up and just burned whatever couldn't withstand it. And then I shut down because people were freaked out or upset or overwhelmed because like in a normal situation, I was 10 times more than what I should have been um, because I didn't know how to, how to modulate things. So I would shut down again and then I would like try it again and it open up and lay waste to whatever. Uh, and now like I'm finally able to like have glasses that allow me to control it or a visor where I can like open up a little bit and like share it enough of myself to like interact with humans without overwhelming them or being awkward or whatever. So it's, uh, it's fucking exhausting, man. It is exhausting. And I'm jealous of people who are able to do it without expending a ton of energy. (laughs) You know, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but everyone is dealing with their own shit. And if anything, this conversation is kind of reminding me, you know, it, it is, again, kind of thinking it's all about us, right? Like, yeah. I, I go out into the world thinking about the shit that I'm working out and internalizing and how people see me and being judged and, you know, feeling feeling competitive and uh, less than other is for better or worse it is so important to step back and remember that everyone else is doing that too you know especially yeah. especially the people i've butt butted heads with in my life you know professionally or socially or it was a weird process for me to to have to simultaneously learn that my feelings it's okay to experience my feelings and to have, and to like give myself grace for being upset about something while at the same time putting it in the context, like the proper context. So like being able to say, yes, my feelings matter, but it's not everything. It's not the end of the world. It's not the center of the universe. Like it's just a feeling and I can experience it and then move on from it, you know? Instead of saying, I can either feel this and nothing else, or I'm not going to feel anything. And again, I, 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 I'm thinking about being judged right now. I'm thinking about people listening going like, yeah, duh, that uh, try to see things in nuance. But for people like us that have always seen things in such extremes, and again, not to be too hard on ourselves, because in, in some ways that's served as well and is important. Uh, faith being a, being a big uh, uh, theme for another episode. <laughs> Um, I'm at probably the best place I've ever been at with it by being in the worst place, which sounds like such nonsense and gobbledygook, but, um, I am so comfortable in the margins and I never was before. I always before was, was, a you know, a seeker as you, um, once described yourself at one period of your life, you know, I was, I was a seeker because I, I was determined that there was an answer and a greater truth that was that was uh, uh, discoverable and it was just a matter of doing the right work and the right way to, <laughs> to getting there, you know? And, yeah. now, and, and now I'm much, I feel like if there is any, any truth in that regard, it's that it isn't that you can't, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. I don't know. It, 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 and and um, whereas that notion was once terrifying to me, I find it liberating now. I definitely am more comfortable accepting what I'm not going to know or understand. But I think that the answer I've come to, you know, for that, like that existential question that everyone asks at some point, like what, what is the point of everything? Um, <laughs> who gives a shit about everything? Yeah. Who gives a shit? <laughs> um, like the I, the who gas, the existentialist yeah. who gas. Uh, 
I, I got to a point where like a little while ago I started worrying that I was like repressing my feelings again and I still do. Um, but it's like the time that I repress things is now shrinking sometimes to like minutes between like when I feel something and when I repress it and like when it actually comes out um, as opposed to like decades previously. But I've started feeling less, um, not in, not in being numb, not in repressing things, but just like I'm having fewer emotional responses to things. Mm. And, um, I've stopped, I stopped wondering what the point was or looking for a point because when, because I think that the question itself is wrong. Like, the it's not a question to be answered it's a feeling to be experienced and i can only experience it when i stop trying so fucking hard to find it i've come to be a big believer in, in, in or at least i'm trying to be a big believer in uh worrying less about life after death and worrying more about life before death yeah yeah um and you know we can we can talk more about my uh, dumbass inability to realize that I'd been suffering panic attacks my whole fucking life <laughs> um, till I was in my late thirties. But uh, yeah, death was always death always terrified me because I was afraid I was going to get to that finish line before I figured it out and found the answer. And accepting that there isn't an answer. And that I shouldn't waste time asking the question that I should just accept and exist in the moment as much as possible. You know, I stopped having those panic attacks. I'm also taking huge doses of a, a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, uh, and that helps. But yeah, I, I guess I'm not seeking anymore. I'm not looking for anything. I'm, I'm trying to uh, strip away things that keep me from being present in the time and space that I'm occupying. It's hard. I will say the times when I am the most present, um, I'm going to go in reverse order. Um, I'm going to do a top three. Number three is when I'm experiencing really good art. Um, as corny as it sounds, number two, and it's so much rarer than it used to be, and it was one of the profound and important things about our subculture experience and something that shouldn't be cast aside, is that conversations like the one we're having right now, certainly without the, the depth and the experience that we bring to it now, but conversations like this were more the norm than they became later in life. You know, oh, yeah. of having these, you know, deep conversations and debates and unpacking and sorting of things, you know. Appearances to the contrary, this conversation is actually taking place in the Castleton Denny's in 1999. Exactly. Um, or I was thinking like that weird short-lived place that had like vegan chili that was at like 56th. And... Modern times. Yeah, remember that? Remember that was like our spot, yours and mine. Yeah. Moments like this, conversations like this. I have been uniquely present for this conversation in a way that I'm not for most. Right. Um, and then first, you know, and the top, and this. <laughs> once upon a time, this would be like the thing I would say because it's what you're supposed to say. But thankfully, in the last several years, it's it's become very true. The times when I'm the most present are, um, and of course not always, but there are moments uh, with my kids. When I'm dealing with anxiety, like on an airplane or something, or if I'm, uh, there are moments with my kids that I can, you know, the, the whole idea of like going to your happy place, there are things that I can conjure that will immediately put me there in the closest to a sort of stillness and serenity that I can muster. And it's, there are you know, it's not like, oh, it was, 
this birthday or this, you know, the Ferris wheel. Or like, you know, it's not some grand experience. They're very simple, very quiet moments that I've had um, with each yeah. of my kids that I can I can summon as uh, the number one moments of, of being present. Yeah. I, you know, like we said, we're going to, we're going to probably address faith at some point, but, um, I've, I've, I've come to the conclusion in recent years that if God exists, it exists in the laughter of children and things like that, you know, like I don't understand a God that is separate from us or a, a, a life force or spirit force that is somehow um, apart and acting upon us. You know, when, when my, when my oldest daughter laughs hysterically, that's like, I, I feel creation there. Like mm-hmm. that, that's pure, life energy and I guess it's why I don't feel the need to like go looking for it anymore because I realize that that love's always there and I just have to go back to that whenever I'm feeling isolated or alienated that's definitely an episode (laughs) (laughs) I think that most most people who are on some spectrum of of the wellness journey or or mental health path however their spirituality is expressed it ends up being the same shit you know mm. like mm, totally. you know prayer beads or you know meditation beads or a rosary or uh, you know a shinto shrine or a kufi you find you find God at the same point, and it ends up not really being God the way it, it becomes this the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. You know, and the spirit's the same everywhere you go. And another and another cliche that rings true: um, the idea that the destination is the, the journey is the destination. Yeah. Thanks for listening to episode three of Hoosier Illusion and check out the next episode in which I talk about learning why it's better to make a phone call 20 years too late than never at all.